Pointers, we're back. We've got more exclusive content here for you. And for those of you that listened to our episode that was released on Friday, we had Dr. Jules Boykoff come on and, and had to and had a fascinating conversation with him about the Winter Olympics. We spoke about uh, the Montana State play-by-play guy who uh, just sort of had diarrhea at the mouth in, returns, in regards to some of his commentary about the Portland State women's basketball team. But now I got to give you some exclusive content. And it's something that was really quite fascinating to me because I know a little bit about the LAPD. I'm from California. I'm not from the LA area. I'm from Northern California. I'm a Bay Area kid, but there's been a lot of obviously national stories about the LAPD and just how shady they tend to be. But here in particular, the Brennan Center found and revealed that the LAPD was surveilling U.S. citizens' social media posts. One of those folks is the guy we have right here with this, Dr. Jules Boykoff. Boykoff, can you give us a little bit more background about this here? Sure, you bet. So as you say, the Los Angeles Police Department was surveilling activists, and it was done through a contract that it had with a pretty controversial technology company that basically this technology company came along and said, guess what, we can take all these... uh, media accounts, social media accounts that are out there, and we can basically pull them all together and organize them for you around particular topics that you're interested in. So we can, any protests around Black Lives Matter, for example, we can take all them, we can scrape them off the internet, organize them for you, and then you can look at these uh, documents And you can decide what you might like to do with them. Maybe you want to crack down on something that's happening. Maybe you want to engage in longer-term surveillance of somebody based on the materials that we pull up here. And so it was really the outsourcing, the neoliberalization, if you will, the outsourcing of this duty to an outside firm, which has real problems because you can't use freedom of information laws with outside firms all the time uh, unless they are, in fact, working tightly with, with an organization that's a public organization. Anyways, they had this cache of internal documents that LAPD could go through. And the Brennan Center for Justice, which is a nonprofit organization in New York, found that there was this stash of social media posts that this uh, controversial technology company had agglomerated for, for the LAPD. And it turns out, yes, Devon, you're right, uh, some of the tweets from my account that I sent from protests in Portland when I was down on the streets uh, checking out what was happening uh, were put into this file. And a group from Portland, I want to shout out, they're the ones that told me about this. They're called the Public Record and Data Archives. They're an activist collective fighting for public records to be actually public. They let me know that they found some of my tweets in there and they pointed me to them so I could check it out. So thanks to them for doing that. Absolutely. First, can you speak to like the legality, the legalities of what the LAPD did surveilling, obviously, your tweets and and, and many others, but obviously more particularly to you, like, was that even legal for them to do? Well, let me just first say before I jump into the legality of it, and it is kind of a gray area, but I would say first, you know, before I started getting into sports studies and, and really mostly thinking about the politics of the Olympics, For the prior decade plus, I had been doing research and writing on the suppression of political dissent in the United States, you know, wrote a couple of books about it, a bunch of articles, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so like, this is something I had thought a lot about. And one of the primary modes of police and state repression is the surveillance of activists. And you, you gather that surveillance data and then you can use it in other ways. You can torque it, you can tweak it to make it seem worse than it is. You can use it as blackmail material as they did with Dr. King when the FBI was surveilling Dr. King. And that's Dr. Martin Luther King. And they had footage of him in various hotels with women who are not Coretta Scott King. And they basically sent a cassette tape to the office to try to get him to not accept the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964 because they had that dirt on him. So that's kind of like the bigger history in which these kind of things should be nestled, I think. But with this particular case, it's always a little bit sketchy because these are private companies and social media posts are out in public, you know, and we tell young people to be mindful of what you put on social media because an employer might be looking at them one day and judging you for it. Well, so might the LAPD through an intermediary. So, you know, this is publicly available data. So it's not illegal necessarily um, for a company to just look at it, maybe collect a little bit of it. Um, there is some issues with the LAPD working with these kind of firms to do this. But the truth of the matter is every single police department worth its salt, or at least of a certain size in the United States, is doing social media analysis at this point as part of its police work. A absolutely. How does it make you feel? I mean, you, you speak to obviously you connected it. You gave the historic connection of Dr. Martin Luther King. We obviously know, you know, his life ended tragically. And, you know, we've seen other incidents of activists who just get mistreated. Obviously, you aren't black like Dr. King is, but still, there's always sort of a risk, you know, at, at play for people who are activists um, that are standing up against, you know, entities, especially those of the like of the LAPD. Um, how do you feel just kind of like as a person knowing that you're being surveilled by one of the shadiest police departments that America has to offer? You know, it wasn't the greatest feeling, not going to lie to you, <laughs> but, um, you know, the truth of the matter is I've, I've had a lot of this sort of thing in my past. I get plenty of threats from people. I've even gotten death threats over things that I've written, um, horrible letters sent to my office at Pacific University suggesting that, you know, what would it be like if my head got chopped off, stuff like that. I've had people try to get me fired at my work for my for about calling my boss and say that I'm an idiot and need to be fired immediately. So like this isn't my first go round with this kind of stuff. And to be honest, if you look at my social media accounts, my Twitter account, you know, I'm not posting like really rambunctious, you know, ACAB kind of material or anything like that. I'm just saying what I'm seeing. I'm maybe posting images, not not revealing the identity of anybody, of course. I'm really careful about that. Posting with permission, photographs that include people. But, you know, I, I just didn't, I wasn't too worried about this, not compared to some of the, like, the private death threats that I've gotten. Now, if LAPD were to share some of this information with uh, outside groups, like right-wing groups that might disagree with my politics, that was could get in a little bit scarier territory if they were to share this stuff. And unfortunately, there's a long history of strong relations between police forces and far right-wing groups. I mean, we've seen it right here in Portland where you've got a, a guy from the Portland police force who is doing all these friendly texts with Joey Gibson from Patriot Prayer, like they're best buddies or something like that. Well, what if the LAPD, who, by the way, you know, there's a lot of ample evidence that the, that there's gangs within the sheriff's division of the Los Angeles uh, Sheriff's uh, Department. And so, you know, what if they start handing that out to other people and say, could you take care of this sort of outsourcing the stress and strain on, on activists? Now that's a different kind of ball game. So, it was a little stressful, but I've certainly had worse in life, that's for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses, you know. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that 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 would be sketchy to me. That that was, was going to be my question for you, Jules, is like if they're not doing anything illegal and and like you said, it's obviously public information that you could just go find your Twitter handle and see all of your tweets, like what is the value of gathering the information in the first place outside of clearly nefarious, you know, potential subtext or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question, Spencer. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that, like, LAPD, I just don't know. I don't know what they were trying to do in terms of gathering this information. But one thing that's really common with police across the United States is that if they can gather data like this, hard data about, like, the number of tweets about a particular topic, they can use that data to turn around and try to justify getting more money, especially in this moment that we are experiencing oh. in the United States around defunding the police and moving it in different directions, like in Portland, the Portland street response, for example, that's a non-cop response when somebody's having a crisis on the streets. There was a real moment there, you know, Devon might call it a zeitgeist even, that had, uh, uh, you know, people pushing to defund the police here. And then this could be used, this kind of information from this outsourced group, this technology company, to, to say publicly to the elected officials, no, no, see, we're dealing with serious threats here. There's a lot of capacity among these groups, and we definitely can't defund us in fact we should refund us get us more money so we can fight this kind of thing so there's a strong potentiality that your work in trying to mitigate these matters could could get the lapd more guns for like say i don't know the olympics coming up or something yeah i mean it's a disconcerting thought but you know, that's the way that, <laughs> that people make arguments terrible and, and and i'm i'm curious to know jules because you do have Jeez. the olympics coming up in Los Angeles in 2028. And obviously you're going to be in the thick of, you know, some of the the work that you've been doing for quite some time now. And one thing that you often speak to is the the militarization, um, the increased militarization of these host cities when it comes to the Olympic Games. Can you just sort of kind of talk about that a little bit more um, for listeners who may not have heard you speak about that here on this podcast in the past, but I think it's something that's that's definitely worth revisiting in regards to just what that militarization looks like when it comes to these host cities and obviously connecting that to that of the LAPD in Los Angeles where the 2028 Olympics are slated to be held. Yeah, Olympic host cities use the Olympic Games like they're own private cash machine, getting all the weapons, special laws, increase in police that they'd never be able to get during normal political times. So they use the special moment, the sort of celebratory moment of the Olympics as a sort of excuse, if you will, to ramp up security provisions. Now, sometimes there are security threats around the Olympics. For example, at the 2014 Sochi Olympics in Russia, there was a Chechen rebel named Doku Umarov that said out loud in public that the Sochi Olympics were a perfectly reasonable target for an attack. But most of the time, there aren't those kind of credible attacks uh, being uh, asked about in public, in public discourse. And so it's basically security forces in the Olympic city use the games to get more weapons they'd never be able to get. And guess what? They don't return them after the Olympics are done. They keep them and they become part of normal policing in the wake of the games. And the Los Angeles Olympics of 1984 are a perfect example of this. They got all sorts of special weapons from the federal government that were handed over to the LAPD in the infamous 
uh, police chief, Daryl Gates, that they turned around and used in the racialized drug war of the 1980s and 1990s. The exact same battering rams that they got from the Olympics, they used to bash in homes of alleged drug dealers and smash people's lives and livelihoods. And so there is a real connection there between intensified policing in the wake of the Olympics and using the Olympics to get more police weapons. And and it's just so interesting to hear about that. I mean, I'm somebody that that frequents L.A. a bit, and I know a lot of people in L.A. Again, I'm from California, so so I've definitely got California ties. But the fact that just like the regular citizen or the normal citizen, or even if I wanted to like break this thing down by race and who obviously gets more impacted by race, and you speak of the gangs within the police force um, in, in Los Angeles in particular, like how alarming is that for just the average person that that is a resident of Los Angeles? And, and what are the things that they should be thinking about as, hey, 2028, we are already here in 2022 now. It's not that far away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I interviewed for my last book, my last book's called No Olympians, Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and beyond. And I interviewed a lot of people in Los Angeles, old timers who'd been there for the 1984 Olympics that a lot of people point to as this positive kind of Olympics in the sense that they didn't hemorrhage money. They actually had a little surplus of around $215 million afterwards, which is super rare when it comes to the Olympics. But I talked to a lot of people, and it was amazing how racialized the remembrance was of 1984. If you were an affluent white person, there'd be a better chance of you looking back at 84 Olympics and going, yeah, that was great. That was fun. And like the people now pushing the 2028 Olympics, people like the mayor, Eric Garcetti, people like the the Baron, Casey Wasserman, the media Baron, they have positive memories of 1984. But I interviewed a lot of people who didn't have positive memories and they happen to be black and brown people for the most part. You know, I've interviewed a, an amazing activist, LA based activist for whom I have enormous respect. A guy named general Dogon, who works with the LA Community Action Network and other organizations fighting against homelessness in LA. And he was saying 1984 was a nightmare. And in fact, if you go back to the media coverage of the 1984 Olympics, there was a Japanese journalist that was in LA for those games covering him for his Kyoto news service back home. And he was freaking out because there were helicopters everywhere. It felt intensely militarized. And black and brown people felt the brunt of that militarization, both during the games and definitely after them as well. You know, I will say this, you know, moving forward to the present moment, you know, I'm, I'm talking about a lot of kind of grim stuff here, guys. No, but no, it's, it's Patreon, Jules. It's why we, it's uh, why we okay. say it's why we saved it for Patreon. Yeah, you got to remember, people, okay, people are I paying got, for this for this dose of sadness right now. Bro. They're <laughs> well, they know what they're getting. Well, let me just say this, you know, about is that there is uh, I've been saying grim stuff, but there is an activist group in L.A. that I think is really interesting and a group to keep an eye on moving forward. They're called No Olympics L.A. And nice. they're on all the socials. They're, they're definitely worth following here. And their coalition of different groups across Los Angeles, from the Black Lives Matter LA chapter to groups in Koreatown, you name it, there's just a ton of people involved with this huge coalition. And they're fighting back against the downsides of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. They have a lot of people who are coming out of Hollywood, so they've got tons of skills in regards to media production and, and producing propaganda against the Olympics. And they're hilarious, and they're funny, and they're not giving up. They'll be there for the Super Bowl in a few weeks when L.A. hosts it in SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, where a lot of people were displaced to make way for that stadium. 
And they're going to keep fighting all the way through 2028, I'm pretty sure of it. So, you know, if you want a little bit of inspiration or something more up to look at, check out this group because they're doing really good work on the streets of Los Angeles. Sick, I'm on it. Absolutely. And obviously you bring up, you know, the the Super Bowl being at SoFi Stadium. The Super Bowl will be shortly after, you know, folks are able to listen to this interview. I think it'll be a week between um, the games that are taking place this weekend. Obviously, this will be on Monday when people get to listen to this. So yesterday, uh, which will be Sunday, when both the AFC and NFC Terminator timeline, bro. Terminator timeline. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The AFC and NFC championship games will be played. But um, could you just sort of speak to some of the things, if if at all, you may not even have you may not even have enough to be able to speak to this, but you speak to the displacement of folks during the building of SoFi Stadium where the Super Bowl will be played, um, just based on that particular model and what took place during the building of SoFi Stadium, how does that correlate to what could potentially happen based on things that we've already seen in the past when it comes to the Olympic Games in particular? Yeah, I mean, look, the Olympics and stadium building both tend to contribute to gentrification and the forced displacement of poor and working class people. That is a clear trend line among social scientists who study the Olympic Games and other sports mega events like the Men's World Cup, for example. And in this case, the stadium was built special for this team in Los Angeles and everybody knew it was going to be used almost immediately for the Super Bowl. And then after that, the Olympic Games. And it contributed to gentrification. There are groups inside of um, Los Angeles, such as the Lennox Inglewood Tenants Union, that is fighting against the gentrification and displacement. Same with the LA Tenants Union, Los Angeles Tenants Union. They're fighting against this as well. They're inspiring activists who aren't just going to lay down and take it, that these rich people basically are moving in, buying the area uh, for the stadium, building this stadium, where people actually died, by the way, in the building of the stadium because they were trying to pick up the pace so much. Some people actually died during the course of that. People aren't going to stand by and take that. So this is going to be an ongoing fight. You're going to see activism if you look around the edges and you work hard and figure out where it is. You're going to see activism around the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. I can guarantee that. You're probably going to have to go off the grid of mainstream media to find it, but it's going to be there. It's going to be those folks from the Olympics, uh, No Olympics L.A., who are connecting the dots between the NFL and the Olympics, between the gentrification of, of these spaces and, and, and pushing forth these sort of vanity projects for rich people, billionaires that own these teams. You know, that's really interesting to hear because, you know, I, my entire excitement about the Super Bowl, well, for one, I just like football, so let's just start there. But, man, all I could think about is the fact that Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Mary J. Blige and Eminem are going to be performing. And I will still That's enjoy it. That's how they get you, bro. That's I, how they I will get you. still enjoy every bit of it. But when you when you put it in the context like that, Jules, I will definitely be looking out to see what type of activism is happening around SoFi Stadium. Important activism, by the way, that will be happening around SoFi Stadium during Super Bowl weekend. Yeah, stay tuned. Well, maybe we can touch base afterwards and talk about it. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's 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 keep an eye on what's going on. Anything you see, uh, you know, we might not be able to get you on for as long as we got you on today. But even if it's just yeah. a quick five to ten minute call in, 
I want to follow up on this conversation and the activism that is taking place around the Super Super Bowl because again, it's important for us to talk about and us to keep an eye on. And you know, we're not necessarily a mainstream media platform, and I doubt that there will be a lot of mainstream media coverage of of what could potentially take place here Super Bowl weekend. Yeah, well, we'll be in touch for sure, and. I appreciate this chance to speak with you today, guys, and thanks thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Absolutely. Jules, can I ask you one question before you go? I have a question sure. for you. Okay, so clearly you're, for your job, you're an academic, but you're also a sports guy. So I got to know, like, what is, like, the childhood, you know, at risk of dating yourself, but what is, like, the childhood, like, moment or, like, series of moments that got you, like, lifelong into sports? Like, what was your thing? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed of my age. I'm 51 years old. I'm a bit of a fossil compared to you guys, but hey, um, <laughs> I, I grew up in Wisconsin and I, I was weaned on a steady diet of hockey. And so like the 1980 Olympics with uh, the Miracle on Ice was unforgettable. But nice. even more for me was the speed skaters from Madison, where I grew up, Eric Hyden and his sister, Beth Hyden. Uh, they both went to the same high school that I went to before I went there, but you know, Madison people through and through. And so that really kind of got me hooked and curious about the Olympic games. And, you know, I played a lot of soccer growing up as well. So I could just got kind of into it from that perspective and soccer is definitely my favorite sport and uh, just never look back. Hmm. Jules, one more question because you brought up Wisconsin and I obviously have, have talked about the NFL and I know that you root for the Bucks, but do you root for the Packers? And if so, how did you feel this past weekend? Oh God, you know, <laughs> of course I have, I, I have rooted for the Packers for my entire life. The only NFL team that is somewhat publicly owned, something to be proud of. But my God, this Aaron Rodgers stuff has just been horrific and just embarrassing. And it's it's really taken the wind out of my sails. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I barely watch any football whatsoever. So um, Kaya and I, my, my partner who Devon works with, Kaya Sand, and I turned on a football game the other day. It was the Chiefs against the Bills. There was like two minutes left. We're like, we should be good U.S. Americans and watch a little football. Let's do it. And we turned it on and we were like, holy shit this game is incredible <laughs> <laughs> like, we, we found out later that someone was like that was like the best two minutes of football maybe in the history of the game yeah, yeah no wow, doubt. okay yeah but besides that you know i'm not that i'm not that into it to be honest but the packers yeah i'm i'm technically obligated to say that i like the packers but man did aaron Rodgers kind of kill it for me do, do you want him to leave because obviously that's the that's just the big general conversation is will aaron Rodgers stay with the packers will he leave so on and so forth yeah, I just don't care. Like, I mean, I guess I kind of hope he leaves the Packers just so we can get a decent human to be the quarterback who's not proliferating these myths that are harmful for everybody in the United States. But, you know, I'm just not that invested. But Swish. All righty. Well, again, Jules, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for not only our, you know, our, our regular episode that we do here weekly, but we even got, got some exclusive Jules Boykoff content for the patrons and, and, and we'll still end up putting it out maybe a couple of few days after just as a as sort of a promo 
um, of our Patreon because it's a new journey that we're starting here with this podcast. And um, I think people will be interested in, in some of the content that, that we had here uh, for. I like to call our patrons winners. Obviously, you know, there's a direct correlation to that of the Wake Up and Win podcast. So I don't just like to call them patrons. I like to call them winners. But the other winners who uh, who, who aren't quite hip with the Patreon ordeal that we have going on, they'll still be able to get a little bit of a dose of what Patreon exclusive content sounds like here for the Wake Up and Win podcast. All right, guys. Well, we'll talk to you later. All right. Have a good one. See you later. On that note, again, we'll leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and And go go win. win.